Father, as we come to Your Word today, we are grateful for it. And we're grateful for the work that it does in us. And so we pray that You would give us ears to hear, and we ask that You would give us eyes to see the significance of this parable today, knowing that without the illumination of the Holy Spirit working within us, we would have not only no understanding, but we would not be able to apply it to our lives. And so we ask that by His power we would understand and that it would change us to the likeness of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be continuing our study of the parables today, which we do every first Sunday of the month. Uh, the rest of the month, we, uh, we're in the middle of Genesis for probably another 20 or so uh, lessons, I would guess. But uh, we're getting close to the end. We're talking about Joseph and his life and everything, and that's going to lead us to the end. But uh, hopefully we'll be done around August or so uh, with our study of Genesis, and then we'll be starting a study in John. But today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and the reason I don't give you a verse is because I'm going to give you a kind of a brief synopsis of this chapter to get us to where, uh, what we're going to be looking at, the parable that we're going to be looking at today. You know, back when we lived in Las Vegas, we had a, a very, very small backyard. In fact, uh, it was smaller than this room. Uh, it was probably about the size of your average school bus. Um, and so you couldn't put a lot back there. But one thing that we did do was we lined the backyard, the, the, the fence that went around the backyard with grapes. And we had more grapes every year than we knew what to do with, probably close to 50 pounds or more um, every single year. And they were absolutely delicious. I, I've never tasted such delicious grapes before or, or since. But, you know, grapes are actually one of the, uh, they are the most widely grown fruit in the world. And they're one of the most um, revered, in a sense, fruits in the world. The fact that they were able to not only grow, but to flourish uh, in, in a small backyard in Las Vegas, but also the fact that I didn't know anything about growing grapes when I started, is a testimony to their ability to grow in even the most impossible, seemingly the most impossible situations. And maybe that's why the, the region of Palestine uh, has always produced an abundance of grapes. I mean, if you were to drive through Washington State here, you would, uh, you would see all over the place, we have these vast fields of, of uh, enormous vineyards uh, between here and Spokane. But even uh, very different places, we're very wet here, but even very arid, very dry places uh, have been characterized by enormous vineyards. Grapes have a way of growing in the most unlikely, most seemingly impossible places. But obviously in, in a vineyard you get grapes, right? And, and uh, you get wine from that. But they also, grapes in the, in the ancient world, they used to be boiled down into a molasses type of substance, a molasses-like jelly, which was recognized as a delicacy which was suitable only for, for kings. 
In fact, a lot of scholars make the argument that when the Bible speaks of a land overflowing with milk and honey, the honey that they're referring to is this molasses, not a, not a honey of bees, but it's this, this molasses that they make from grapes that was supposed to be so delicious. And so with that said, one of the things that we need to understand about vineyards is that a flourishing vineyard was a picture of God's kingdom. Maybe because it can grow in even the most difficult, most seemingly impossible places. In fact, several places in the Old Testament uh, picture the ethnic nation of Israel uh, as God's vineyard. Uh, One place that you can find this is Isaiah chapter 5. This is a very significant chapter for what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, It's all over the place in Isaiah chapter 5. But I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 7, where it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So it's setting the definition there when it's speaking of vineyard. It's speaking of the house of Israel. It couldn't be much clearer in terms of giving a definition or, or, or a significance to a metaphor. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10 also records uh, a, a likeness, a metaphor using the vineyard uh, where, where God says, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. He's talking about the religious climate, the, 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 the worship that Israel was offering unto God. The psalmist beautifully testifies of God's saving work uh, when he writes in chapter 80, verse, 80, uh, verse 8, uh, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. That's the vine that he took out of Egypt. Of course, that's referring to the Israelites, right? So this was all imagery that would have been extremely, extremely familiar to the people who would often come and listen to Jesus preach. But obviously, Jesus did more than just preach. He did preach, but he also came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we know that that would take place in Jerusalem. But a few days before that happened, a few days before he gave his life to ransom many, Jesus came into Jerusalem to the cheers of the masses, to the cheers of the people who had waited so long for the Messiah. But right after telling us about this wonderful, uh, this moving arrival in Jerusalem, we get to Matthew chapter 21 which is what we're going to be looking at today. And Matthew chapter 21 tells us that Jesus went into the temple and he infuriated some people by going into uh, the temple and overturning these tables. That's what we see in verse 12. Then Matthew tells us about how angry the religious leaders got and, and were getting increasingly angry about the adoration that Jesus was receiving from some of the children. And when Jesus left that day. He came back the next day, and on his way, he was hungry, but he noticed that there was a fruitless fig tree on the way. That's verse 19. And he cursed the fig tree for having no fruit. He said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And it withered on the spot. And the disciples were were obviously stunned. As he got to the temple, the religious leaders approached him and asked him what his authority was. By what authority was he doing and teaching all these things? And instead of answering them, Jesus answered their question with a question. He promised them, if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. That's verse 24. And the question that he asked them was this. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? 
and the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of put between a rock and a hard place here. They couldn't answer. They said to themselves, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they couldn't answer. They they were in trouble either way. And so we read in verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, I, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But while Jesus didn't uh, answer their question, what he did do was proceed to tell them a couple of parables. And of course, these are stories that are intended to communicate a deeper spiritual truth. And first, he told the parable of the two sons, which, uh, if you remember, about a year, year and a half ago, we studied uh, in our study of the parables of Christ. And I'll, I'll just read it for you real quick. It's verses 28 to 32. In verses 28 to 32, Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And of course, the symbolism there is that the son who said, I will go and and didn't, would be the religious leaders and the ones who said, I won't go and who ended up going would be the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And this is what brings us to the parable that's commonly known as the parable of the wicked workers in the vineyard. So we need to see it in context. That's what I've been doing for the last five minutes or so is giving you a contextual understanding of what leads up to this. We need to see how it relates to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And we need to see how it relates to the judgment of this fruitless fig tree. Because the point that Jesus made with the cursing of this fruitless fig tree is actually pretty much the same point that He's going to make in the parable of the wicked workers in the vineyard. So I'll just start by reading uh, the, the meat of the parable to you, and we'll discuss it before we move on to see how Jesus interprets it. So Jesus says, after telling the parable of the two sons, he says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. So Jesus tells this parable, this this story of a master of a house, or a landowner in some translations, who goes to great lengths to establish a vineyard, to plant and protect this vineyard. And he tells us that this master built a fence around it, a hedge around it, he dug a wine press in it, 
And even beyond that, he put a watchtower in the middle of it before leasing it to some tenants or some, some workers. And then he traveled to another country. So the fence or, or, the, or the hedge, that would keep invaders out, that would keep intruders and animals uh, out. And the watchtower would give the people who were working in the vineyard or leasing the vineyard the ability to watch in the distance and to be prepared for when intruders come. So the people who, who worked there, the people who leased it, would have been basically the same as employees who work on commission. You know, they, they would tend the grapes, uh, and they would profit in proportion to how well the vineyard produced and prospered. And all of this would have been a very familiar image to the people in Jesus' time. They would have been very familiar with this image, if from no other place, from Isaiah chapter 5, Right? But this is how it was done. This is how they saw it being done day in and day out. There were vineyards scattered around Jerusalem, scattered around Israel, Palestine. And the owners of these large vineyards would be extremely wealthy, affluent people who were able to afford the initial investment uh, that was required for establishing not only a, a prosperous uh, vineyard, but one that continually is producing good harvest I mean, if you think about how much land, like if you drive through Washington and you see how much land is taken up by these vineyards, you have to imagine that there are scores of people who have to manage all these grapes, all these vineyards, right? But they also, uh, they, they have to make a lot of money because it's got to be expensive to pay all those people. It's got to be expensive to manage all that land. And so when the time for the harvest drew near in the parable, and that would have been summertime, uh, the landowner would send some of his servants to collect the fruit. And that's what happens in this story. They, they would typically bring back samples of wine and produce, and the landowner would set a price for it, and he'd get a return on his investment and then pay the workers. And this was all very common to the people who were listening to Jesus. This was very ordinary. But if there's one thing that we should have learned as we've studied Jesus' parables, it's that there's almost always a place where things just get weird, where things take a very unexpected twist, where, where it kind of breaks from reality in a sense. And perhaps that's to show how absurd whatever he's trying to say is when it's taken to its uh, logical conclusion in a, a word picture, in a parable. And that's what happens next. We see an unexpected turn as the landowner sends his servants to collect some of the produce. Instead of sending the servants back to the landowner with wine and with produce, Jesus tells us that they beat one, they kill another, and they stone yet another. And we should see this for what it is. What would you think if you had a vineyard and the employees were doing that to your servants? You would say, there's an uprising, right? This is an act of war against the landowner. Because nobody in their right mind would have done this. That's part of the point of the story. Nobody in their right mind would do this. Perhaps more unexpected than the way that the vineyard workers treated the servants is the fact that the, the master, the landowner, doesn't retaliate immediately. Instead, he... he he could have just come in and, and put all these guys to death, and that would have been perfectly just. That would have been, nobody could have blamed him for that, right? It would have been the right thing to do. 
Instead, he sends more servants. That's shocking. That's shocking. Because these guys are obviously extremely hostile to him. And his response, instead of putting them to death, putting them to the sword, is to send more servants. In fact, he sends even more servants the second time than he did the first time. And the same thing happens. The servants are abused. They're attacked. They're murdered. And so finally, the master decides that the best plan would be to send his own son to them. And in the world's eyes, they'd say, this is just foolishness, isn't it? But in the eyes of the landowner, this is wisdom. He sends his own son to them, and surely they would respect him, right? I mean, if the son comes, if he shows up, they know that he shows up with the authority of the one who sent him, of the father. But instead of welcoming him, and instead of receiving him, they take him outside of the vineyard, and they murder him in cold blood. And not only do they do that, but part of their plan is to steal his inheritance. They want the vineyard for themselves. They want to manage it themselves. They don't want to have to answer to a landowner. And somehow they come to the conclusion that the way to get what they want is to kill the son and steal his inheritance. So they take him out and they murder him in cold blood. So as we continue, we want to consider the symbolism that we find within this parable. The first thing that we need to understand here is the identity of the master of the house or the identity of the landowner. And who's that? That's, that's the father, right? It's God the Father. What does the vineyard represent? It represents, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 5, it represents the ethnic nation of Israel, just like it did throughout so many Old Testament passages. Who do the workers in the parable represent? It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. And the son of the landowner, who does that represent? That's probably pretty clear. It's Jesus Christ himself. In fact, this is all, all very, very familiar to what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, let me read you verses 1 to 4 again. And, and listen to this in light of this parable that we just heard. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And there's the question of the ages, right? I mean, it sounds very familiar because it's almost parallel to the, par- to the parable that Jesus is telling here in Matthew chapter 21. God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he delivered them from their captors. He led them to the promised land, to Canaan. He loved them. He chose them. He redeemed them. He poured out His grace upon them. He provided for them. He did all that you could possibly expect Him to do. All for the sake of planting them and causing them to grow against the odds, just like a vineyard in a dry, arid climate. But in planting them in Canaan, 
He had some regulations for them. He had some expectations for them. He had rules for them to follow in accordance with the covenant that he established with them. And if there's one thing that uh, that they and, and we, if we're wise, should realize after reading the book of Leviticus, it's that God takes the holiness of his people really, really, really seriously. He instructs them in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. They were intended to produce, metaphorically, delightful grapes, delicious grapes, but instead they produced wild grapes. These were grapes that weren't good for, for eating. Uh, this, is a, this is a metaphor, good fruit, right? They weren't good for anything, these wild grapes. And that was God's way of saying that instead of producing good fruit, good works, holiness in their lives that was pleasing to God, they produced bad fruit that God could not and would not accept as they fell into sin, as they fell into idolatry, as they became more and more rebellious, more and more defiant unto God. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, man, what a, a high and dangerous and costly calling. Because they were hated repeatedly, over and over. These prophets were absolutely hated by the people of Israel. Jezebel, in the days of Elisha, murdered scores of God's prophets. Zechariah was, was stoned. And even Isaiah, who was revered as the greatest of all the prophets, even Isaiah was murdered under the authority of Manasseh, according to Jewish tradition. And most of these men, most of these prophets, would have had their bodies dumped in the valley of Kidron, which was only a short journey by foot from where Jesus was telling this parable. But even the, the book of Hebrews describes in fairly vivid detail what happened to the prophets of old. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, second half of verse 35 to 38, we read this. Some were tortured, some of the prophets, that is. Some of them were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again in, to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. By the way, that's how Isaiah, according to Jewish tradition, was killed. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Man, if you were called to be a prophet, your life was in danger. It was a dangerous position because they were repeatedly abused, mistreated, or murdered. By whom? By the Jews, by the people God sent the prophets to minister to. They were the ones who had the blood of the prophets on their hands. The question that we have to ask is why? Why were they killing every prophet, all these prophets? Why were they abusing all these prophets? Why did they hate all the prophets? And the answer is remarkably easy and obvious. It's because they hated God. It's because they hated God. That's why they hated the people who represented God unto them. It's not that they were ambivalent toward God. 
It's not that they had some type of neutrality toward God, like one way or the other, they couldn't care less. No, they hated God. And while they couldn't attack God Himself, right? They could express their hatred for God deliberately by abusing and murdering those whom God had sent to represent Him, the prophets. So Jesus also speaks a word of prophecy here, doesn't He? Because He tells them what they're going to do to Him as well. How's that for spiritual blindness? How's that for hatred? He tells them what they're going to do, and then they go ahead and do it. He spoke the truth to them. Everywhere He went for, for... His whole life, He spoke truth. And in His ministry, He loved the people. He cared for the people. He was meek and mild with the people. He healed the people that they brought to Him. He cured cured them of diseases and, and defects that to this day, science still hasn't figured out how to fix. And when you consider all the things that He did, wouldn't you think that the people would have loved Him? Don't you think they would have loved him? But they didn't. They hated him. And by the end of this week in Jerusalem, they would be seeking his death. Why? For the same exact reasons that their fathers had hated the prophets and killed the prophets. Because the people hated God. And they hated anyone and everyone who represented God and thus displayed the virtue of God or the values of God or the character of God. That was dangerous. And that's what they hated Jesus for. He represented God. God had sent Him for that purpose. And I don't believe that Jesus was, was trying to speak in a way that wasn't clear here. I don't, I don't think, you know, some of his parables, he's trying to conceal truth. Some of them he's trying to reveal truth. This is one in which he's trying to reveal the truth to the people. It was not only clear, but as we'll see here in a few moments, Jesus made sure that they understood exactly what the point of this parable was. But thinking about what's happened so far in the parable, what is the right course of action if you are the landowner? What would be, what would you do against these types of wicked workers? What course of action would be appropriate and just? And that's exactly the question that Jesus continues by asking. Let's look at verses 40 and 41. When therefore, Jesus says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I love that Jesus does this. It's kind of like when Nathan confronts David, right? Let's him answer. Let's him see the, in, uh, the injustice of it and come up with what a just punishment would be. So Jesus puts the ball back in their court. What would you do, he says, to, to this type of people? What should the landowner do? And they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And were they right? Yes. But you know what this tells us? Well, it tells us 
first of all, these people didn't even realize that Jesus was talking about them. But it also tells us that even the wickedest, vilest people, even the wickedest sinners, have an, an intrinsic, an inherent, almost instinctive sense of right and wrong, of justice. So Jesus didn't have to put the ball back in their court. He didn't have to proceed this way. He, he could have just said, and so the master of the house, the landowner, came back and he destroyed all the wicked workers of the vineyard. And of course, that would have been right. It's the same answer. But that's not what he does. That's not the way that he proceeds with this parable. Instead of telling them what the just penalty is, he lets them answer the question and thereby they declare their own doom. They declare the judgment that they themselves were worthy of receiving. Jonathan Edwards was famous for one of his sermons in particular called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that is a title that uh, seems to offend certain groups of people these days. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, uh, it, it's completely biblical. It's one of the best sermons ever recorded being preached. Uh, I do encourage you to read it. It's, uh, I had to read it for a literature class in high school, um, which is interesting. But uh, that's one sermon that he was famous for. But there's another one that he gave uh, titled, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. And in a day like ours, when so many bow to the false god of self-esteem and thus go to church not hoping to be encouraged to pursue holiness, but just to be encouraged just, just to get a boost to their self-esteem. In a day and age like this, maybe we shouldn't be too surprised that there are a lot of people who are really confused and offended by a sermon title like this. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. But here in our text, we see that even the cold-hearted Pharisees, their hearts were so far away from God. Even these cold-hearted Pharisees recognized what justice requires towards sinners. And it's the same judgment that we would have to render unto ourselves as well if we're going to be completely honest about it. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees here for just a moment. What would you say? What should the owner of the vineyard do to everyone who was hostile toward his son and murdered his son? We would either be hypocrites if we denied that this is the just penalty, or we'd be liars if we deny that the answer is receiving anything less than a full outpouring of the Father's wrath. So Jesus concludes this parable with kind of an explanation and a judgment. Let's look at verses 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
So the Pharisees and the scribes knew what was just. They, they answered the question, the previous question correctly, but they had failed to realize that it applied to them, that it was actually directed toward them. And so Jesus keeps going. He appeals to their, to their sense of pride, right? And he, he asks them, have you never read in the Scriptures? That's insulting them, right? It, it's a little bit insulting for them. Of course they had. These were the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew the Scriptures. The problem was that they had eyes, but they couldn't see. The problem was that they had ears, but they couldn't hear. They were just the blind leading the blind. Why? Because of the way that their sin and their hatred for God prevented them from seeing and hearing correctly. That didn't prevent them from knowing what Scripture said. But it did prevent them from understanding what Scripture said. And which is more important? Understanding. They didn't have it. They didn't have it because of their sin. Of course, this text that Jesus is quoting here would have been familiar to the Pharisees and the scribes. They knew what the Old Testament said. They would have immediately recognized that this was a reference to Psalm 118 which had a reference not to the agricultural industry, as, as Jesus often uh, used to explain things, but instead it applied to the building industry. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, quote, A builder would go to the stone pile and select for himself the best stones for use in constructing the finest buildings, tossing the defective stones aside. But the psalmist imagined another builder who came along and noticed one of the stones that the first builder had discarded, and he not only used it in his house, but made it, the cornerstone, end quote. So the cornerstone would have been the stone that was used to support the entire construction of the building. The, the whole building would have been constructed upon the cornerstone. The cornerstone would be square, and it would be very solid. If it had any defects, it wouldn't hold the weight of a building. But it would serve as the architectural anchor for an entire building. The point, though, is that even though the Pharisees and the scribes had rejected him, Christ himself would still be the cornerstone upon whom God's plans would rest, would be built. And because of their rejection of Christ, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the elders of Israel would have their privileges revoked. They would no longer be the people assigned to caring for God's vineyard. They were kind of like the scaffolding on the building that God was making with His plans. And the time had come to take all the scaffolding down. Because the cornerstone was in place. Now there's a temptation that some of us have to think that this doesn't apply to us. That this only applied to the people in that specific situation. And so therefore it has no application to us, no significance whatsoever to us today. But let me say this in the clearest of terms. If you think that this has absolutely no significance or no application for us, you're not understanding the point of the parable. Because the truth is that the same parable could be told to anyone who has received even the smallest of God's blessings and yet continues to live in rebellion against the God who has blessed them. 
So maybe if he were here today, maybe if Jesus were here today, he wouldn't have used the imagery of a vineyard with us since we're probably not so familiar with agriculture, not as familiar as these people that he was talking to were. But maybe he would have used a different story to draw us to the same conclusion. Could he have done that? You know, if he wanted to? Sure, why not? The fact of the matter is that just like them, God has put us right here, right now. And we're in a place, we're in a culture, we're in a country that has prospered greatly. And God is the one who has put us here at this time. And we have the blessing of religious freedom here. So we're fenced in, so to speak, to to use a kind of parallel to the parable. And in our prosperity, we have built many, many churches. At one point, uh, when I first got here, I, I surveyed the area and tried to figure out how many churches there were within a mile. There were like 19 churches within one mile of this place. In our prosperity, we have built so many churches across this country. We have religious freedom to practice there. We have all of these incredible blessings that God Himself has given us. And yet, I am sure that as you look around at the culture, as you consider all the changes that have taken place just over the last generation, although it goes further back than that, all the cultural churches and the way that Christians are now being silenced or or being forced out of business or forced to bow the knee before the culture's favorite idols, I'm sure that you would agree when I say that we as a culture, as a nation, have been no more faithful than the leaders of ancient Israel, even though there are churches on like every corner in America. The truth is that every one of us by nature, is an enemy of God. And so in that sense, we are no better than the Pharisees or the scribes. In that sense, we are no different than they are, than these vineyard workers, by nature. One of the greatest verses that Paul ever wrote was Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. That is a great verse. There's so many theological truths in there. But you can kind of break it into two halves. There's the half that says we were enemies to God. And it's, it's, it's tempting to just kind of skip over that and get to the good part, which talks about how we're reconciled. But if you miss the significance of the first half of that verse, the second half is nowhere near as amazing. In fact, it kind of falls flat if you don't think about the significance of the first part of that verse. When Paul says that we were God's enemies, he's talking to people who have been redeemed, right? But think about exactly what it means to have somebody, God, or anybody, as your enemy. What does being an enemy entail? Think of it this way. I want you to to think in your minds for a moment about somebody that you, you really love. Somebody who is absolutely dear to you. If this person whom you love is being attacked, maybe they're being attacked physically, maybe they're being attacked verbally, whatever. They're being attacked. What do you do? You jump in and you defend them, right? You, you do something to come to their defense. 
But what do you do when somebody that you hate, when somebody who's your enemy, is attacked? You're at least tempted, probably, to jump right in. You delight in their harm and in their destruction. What do you do when the friend, go back to the friend, what do you do when this person is, is loved or, or praised, right? You do the same thing, right? You, you, you add in, you, you jump in, just like you would jump in when your enemy is being attacked. But when somebody you love is being praised, you jump in. You, you want to add to it. You, you want to you delight in their uh, being on the receiving end of this praise. But what do you do when your enemy is praised? You attack. Maybe, maybe not physically, but maybe you just introduce some negative factors into the conversation. Or maybe you know, somebody says something really positive about your enemy and you do what you can to refute whatever positive characteristics they've attributed to your enemy. And this is exactly what man's natural disposition toward God is. When God is praised, the natural man scowls and simmers with hatred. When God is insulted, the natural man wants to join in. He wants to pour salt in the proverbial wound. The natural man's heart cries out as Pharaoh did in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? And as Jonathan Edwards points out, he says, quote, They value one of their equals much more than God and are ten times more afraid of offending such than of displeasing God that made them. End quote. The hatred, the animosity, that natural man has for God is also seen in what the natural man values and loves and aspires for and desires in life. Think about it this way. What does God value? Holiness, right? That's one thing that God values. Humanity mocks that idea. They call that self-righteousness. It's impossible. It's stupid. It's just being unrealistic. It's having an unrealistic perception of yourself in their view. God loves righteousness. How does the world feel about righteousness? How does natural man feel about righteousness? He hates it. He hates somebody telling him what's right and wrong. And as you look around the world today, this is exactly what you see. Humanity is trying to determine for themselves what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Why? Because they hate God's righteousness. And this is why the culture is hostile toward ideas like you know, having school, uh, schools pray to start the day. That's what they did when I was a kid. I'm probably a rare exception. But I know that today, there is no prayer in school anymore. This is why the world is so hostile toward ideas like going to church. This is why there's this increasing idea in our day and age that we need to take 501c3 status away from churches. This is why the world thinks it's foolish to deny the desires of the flesh which contradict the very Word of God. The reality is that while natural man hates God and sets his, hearts, his heart and his plans against God, it's as if he instinctively knows that he can't actually hurt God. That his arms are too short to box with God. So, so either he completely denies that there is a God, 
Or he directs his anger and his hatred and his animosity to whom? To us. Toward those who represent God in his eyes. We really, really shouldn't be surprised when we're hated by the world, friends. Jesus told us that that's the way it would be. Why? Because he was hated. And a servant isn't greater than his master. And God is hated by the world. But the same God who's hated by the world sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world in order that anyone and everyone who repents and believes in him will not fall under God's judgment when he returns. The same God who is hated by the world has promised that those who will believe in Christ and confess their sins will be washed clean. They will be forgiven of all their sins and all their shame. The same God who is hated by the world took us as His enemies and He made us His friends by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The same God who is hated by the world has promised that in our new nature, He will make us new. And in this new nature, we will learn to love what God loves. We will learn to hate the things that He hates. We'll learn to value what He values. And the same God who is hated by the world has planted us who are in Christ into the world right here, right now, this place, this time in history. For what purpose? For the purpose of producing fruit. Not being fruitless fig trees, but for the purpose of going out into the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples, bearing much fruit. Listen very carefully here. We must understand the high calling of making disciples. Because there is no greater calling, there is no greater honor on earth. If somebody were to come up to you tomorrow and say, you know, I'm going to make you President of the United States, that would be less of an honor than being a disciple maker called by God and placed here right now for the sake of bearing fruit in Christ. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, all of your heart, mind, strength. Natural man's inclination is to hate God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself, right? But again, this is against natural man's inclinations. Not only does he hate people who are different than himself, he hates himself because he hates the image of God. But we, as God's people, must love our neighbors enough to bring the good news of the gospel to them. The greatest sin is for anyone to reject that offer of entering the kingdom of God by rejecting the cornerstone upon whom it stands. That is the greatest sin. And Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus isn't here for people to take out and, and murder today, but instead of doing that, people will choose to defy Him, 
to the greatest of their ability, living as if Christ were not Lord over their lives. But know this, for those who reject Christ, He will be glorified by you. He'll be glorified by your judgment. But if you will repent, and if you will put your faith in Him, if you will believe in Him, He will be glorified in your salvation and the wrath of God which you have stored up against yourself by sinning against God repeatedly will be washed away. You will be completely forgiven. Either way, Christ is Lord and Christ will be glorified. And if you are in Christ, don't ever forget that God has put you right here, right now. This specific place, this specific moment in history for the sake of doing good works that glorify Christ. Bearing fruit. Good fruit. Sweet fruit, not wild grapes. God isn't pleased by wild grapes or by fruitless fig trees. You must strive to submit yourselves more and more and more fully to His Word, to His will, and to His way. And I urge you to take this calling very seriously and to walk in a manner worthy of the high calling that you have been given in Christ. I leave you with a benediction that was used by a Presbyterian minister by the name of Richard Halverson, who was actually a chaplain for the United States Senate for many years. And he shared in the conviction that our purpose is to produce fruit, to live fruitful lives by the grace of God for the glory of Christ. And for years, he ended his services with these words. Quote, Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of His Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in His grace, His love, His power. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by this passage. And we pray, Lord, that You would give us a right perception of ourselves in order that we may more fully appreciate the salvation that we have in Christ. Teach us to remember who we were and what we were saved from. Not only were we saved from self-destruction, but by Your grace we've been saved from Your terrible wrath. But we confess to You that we are no better and no different than these scribes and Pharisees who were so hypocritical. We are no more deserving of Your grace, but we thank You for it. We thank You that You have given us your grace, that you have lavished it upon us, even though we were your enemies. We did not seek peace with you. You opened the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of Christ and to see that peace with you had been provided through him. 
And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we've been saved by your grace. And we pray, Lord, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would bear much good fruit for the glory and the honor of Christ who shed his blood to redeem us and in whom we have complete forgiveness. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.